Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, would you please open with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Remember, the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes to a group of people in Corinth. And Corinth was a four-mile isthmus that separated southern Greece from northern Greece. It was a place in 156 BC that rebelled against Rome and Rome toppled the city. They completely raised the city, R-A-Z-E-D. They knocked it down. They destroyed it and they left the city vanquished for a hundred years until Julius Caesar came to power and Julius Caesar knew a good thing when he saw one and he recognized that the canal at Corinth that went right through Greece was a kind of conveyor belt for boats that allowed people to sail four miles to get through Greece rather than sail the hundred miles or so around that was necessary. And so Julius Caesar put a Roman garrison there in 55 uh, um, AD, in 44 rather, uh, uh, BC. And Corinth printed money for Rome. <laughs> it was kind of like Amazon's two-day shipping for the ancient Near East. It was a place that was incredibly um, powerful economically and people flocked to this new city. It didn't have a native population. It had been decimated 100 years prior in 44 BC. No aristocracy, no native population. Um, a temple was there that they had rebuilt to Apollo and Aphrodite and um, a thousand temple prostitutes uh, practiced their wares on the hillside near Corinth. And you can imagine this city with this incredible economic engine, with this port that allowed you to save time. How toxic it would have been for sailors who could save three days or a week on the ship. They could stop at Corinth for the night. And the mixture of that culture and the lonely sailors created this incredible destructive moral environment. And to Corinthianize people or the Corinthians was a derisive word used in the ancient Near East for those who were promiscuous. And so as we look at this third letter which is 1 Corinthians for us but it's in Paul's exchange with the Corinthians the third letter that he writes to them the one that we have a copy of, the one that's in our Bibles in 1 Corinthians. We come to chapter 14. And before we stand and read it, I just want to remind you where we are. The Corinthians were a mess of a church and they were trying. They were trying to do this thing called worship Jesus. But in their gathered worship service, it was a total debacle. You had, you had people wearing scandalous dress. You had the rich coming to the Lord's Supper early because they could get off work. And the poor and the day laborers coming later. And by the time they showed up, some of the people had already been half drunk with the wine and hadn't left anything for those at Corinth. That's chapter 11. And then Paul reminds them that all of you have gifts by the power of the Holy Spirit. How are you to be a spiritual person? You use your spiritual gift. 
But you're all one. So quit bickering about competing about your spiritual gifts. What is the greatest gift? Ah, chapter 13. We've spent the last six, seven weeks in it. Love. Love is the mark that you're growing spiritually. And then now in chapter 14, Paul comes back to his larger argument of how are we to use our spiritual gifts. And he'll begin, as we'll read in just a second, to pursue love and to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So let's look together today at our call to use our gifts. And he's going to highlight two gifts in particular. Would you stand together with me as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 14? I'll read verses 1 through verse 12. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Now, one of the privileges we have as a church that preaches expositionally through Scripture is to come to chapters of the Bible that are hard. <laughs> and this is one. Some of you thought, well, why did he spend so much time on chapter 13? He spent seven weeks on chapter 13. Well, maybe it was because I was trying to figure out what I thought about chapter 14 the whole time. Now seriously, chapter 14 is a verse that is in Scripture, and so we're going to teach through it. But it's also a passage that's very divisive in the Christian church. And I want to start this morning by giving you a word picture. I want to show you a scene, and I want to invite you to keep two images in mind. The Amish barn raising activity is remarkable amongst the Amish community today. Have any of you ever seen videos of an Amish barn raising? It is remarkable how men will frame the barn and they will gather together and in a single day, except for the finishes, they will raise the barn from sun up to sundown. they will work. And you can go on YouTube and you can look at these amazing acts. This is an example of a 
frolic. You know that word? To frolic about? It comes from the idea where a work event combines socializing with a practical goal. And barns that are built by an Amish community remain the possession of a single Amish family. It is their barn they use for the upbuilding of their own family. And it's an incredible thing, isn't it? Amish barn raising. Now we know less about Amish churches which are built almost in the same way except they are built over a long period of time. And they are built also by the community and they are also built like the barns often with wood or with the native stone that's found in the region in which the Amish live. Today Ohio or Indiana or Pennsylvania or even some places in Oklahoma. Well, they will use the native rock in order to build their church. And it will take them not just a day to put it up. It will take them sometimes years to build this very simple, very beautiful, in its simplicity, structure for the whole community to gather. Now, an Amish barn remains the possession of a single family. And it's great. It nourishes that family. It protects the hay for that family. It provides shelter for the livestock of that family. And the family revolves around the work that happens with that Amish barn. But the church that the Amish built is for the entire community. And the Amish will say, until the church is complete, our community is not yet complete. And they will build for sometimes days, months, even years to complete the beauty in all of its simplicity of an Amish church and it lasts generations. Now I want you to hold those two images in mind of an Amish barn and an Amish church as we look at 1 Corinthians 14. Because controversy loves this chapter. (laughs) And I want to invite you to look into the text because what Paul says, if you look at this text and you read this text and you reread this text and you read this text again and you reread this text and you read this text again and you read the text, it begins, two words begin to emerge. Really three in the whole chapter but two in the first 12 verses. Do do you remember those uh, those hologram images that you used to look at? Like at the mall, you look through the image and then all of a sudden an image would pop out like a dinosaur or a lion or a festival. And You remember what I'm talking about? That's what happens when you read 1 Corinthians 14. And there are two, there there are three primary things that emerge out of the whole of chapter 14. And they are, they are the words, number one, intelligibility. Number two, edification. And number three, intentionality. And so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the point of all of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and then we're going to dive in to the first two parts. The intelligibility part and the edification part. And we will leave the intentionality of it for next week. Where do I get that from? Well notice if you are to look at the text with me It says, first of all, in verse 2, for no one understands him. There's the word understanding. You were to look later and you would find again that he says several times, understanding, understanding. Down in verse 9, intelligible. You see that word there? Verse 11, uh, verse 10, meaning. Verse 11, meaning. Listen, this, this word, understanding or intelligibility, meaning, what something means just emerges out of this text. And also the word edification, to build up. You see build up in, uh, look, verse uh, 3. Where else do you see it? 
children. Look at the Bible with me. Where do you see it? In verse 4, he says, builds up himself. Twice builds up the church. Where else do you see the word built up? Look at verse 5, the very end, that the church may be built up. And then again, the very end of verse 12, it says for the what? For the building up of the church. Do you see that, Bible scholars? Meaning and edifying. Now let's look at those two things together. First, intelligibility. What is the purpose of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians? I'm going to give it to you in a sentence and then we're going to digest it over the next two weeks. Here it is. God glorifying gathered worship. What we're doing right now. Needs to be intelligible. Edifying and intentional for the building up of the body as we lovingly use our gifts. Got it? Let me say it for us. God glorifying gathered worship needs to be intelligible, edifying, and intentional for the maturity of Trinity as we lovingly use our gifts. So let's look first. Intelligible. Worship needs to be clear and understandable. You need to know what is going on. And in this chapter, what Paul is saying is he is saying, listen, pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gift. Something that he picked up from chapter 12, verse 31. Where he said, before he dove into the love chapter, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Remember that? And now I'll show you a more excellent way. He comes back to this idea of desiring the spiritual gifts. And then, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then, 1B, all the way down through verse 11, is a little parenthetical section talking about two of those gifts. Which we'll talk about again next week, because he continues on in the verses after chapter, uh, verse 12. But if you were to read the point Paul is trying to make, you would go... It would read like this. Verse 1. Then you skip to verse 12. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. That's what Corinth wanted. They wanted, to, they wanted to see the works of the spiritual life. Strive to excel in building up the church. That is Paul's point. But we can't really understand the depth of what he's trying to say to them unless we talk a little bit about tongues and prophecy. Two gifts that were for Corinth then and for us today, they were highly divisive and controversial. So let's talk about them. The problem in Corinth centers on the fact that they held that the gift of tongues uniquely illustrated one's spirituality. And so Paul pulls two of the gifts that he lists in chapter 12 and he compares and contrasts them. Tongues and what's the other one? Prophecy. That's right. And he says the key question to judge the effectiveness in gathered worship is this. Are you behaving according to the principle of love? As I just explained, Paul says in chapter 13. As you demonstrate the gifts of love. Which means that you are not to build up yourself in, in public worship, but you are to build up others. 
Are you exercising God's gifts in a way that by his spirit builds others up in love? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 that there are some things which can puff you up and make you proud and make you self-important. But what builds people up is love. And all of our gifts are to be used to build one another up in love. Are you with me so far? Okay. Here's the deal. In Acts chapter 2, it is overwhelmingly clear by 99.999% of all biblical commentators who are orthodox that, that those were foreign languages. Because the Gentiles heard Peter preach in their own tongue. Remember that? Acts chapter 2 is a foreign language. The tongue that's in Acts, that's in 1 Corinthians 14, what is it exactly? It is hard to know with absolute certainty. But, Paul seems to suggest that it is the use of tongues, another species of the use of tongues, that is a private prayer language. Could it be a foreign language? Absolutely. But listen to the way he talks about it. Paul says, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. This seems to be a different use of the traditional understanding of tongues as just merely a foreign language, right? And he says, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. That speaks as though a tongue is something that is practiced, a spiritual gift where somebody speaks or prays to God in a way that provides deep communion. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now Paul says, I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Because the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone is there to interpret. Why? Because Paul says, unless someone is there to interpret, you're going to sound like a foreigner to other people. It's going to be strange for those who are visiting. I mean, look, he says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But I, if I do not know the meaning, verse 11, of the language, I, I will be a foreigner. I will be a barbarian. The word barbarian comes from the word barbar, bar. It's it, it, so though somebody is bar, 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 bar. That's why they called them barbarians, because they spoke with a funny tongue. They sounded like they were saying barbar bar in English. Foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. But with yourselves, since you're eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. There are people that you will read that will say, this absolutely is a private prayer language and that that is what 1 Corinthians 14 means. Okay, great, let's be friends. And there are some who will say, nope, 1 Corinthians 14 is the exact same that Acts chapter 2 is. It is a language. It is a language. And, and I will say to them, great, let's be friends. It is hard exegetically to know what's going on here. And so I just want to come into you this definition in this context that tongues in chapter 14 appears to be the gift of speaking to God in prayer in a language that results in intimate and personal communion with him. And that appears to be what was going on in Corinth. And what Paul is saying is, brothers, when you gather for worship, okay, great, you, you, you pray to God in a unique way, in an intimate, deep way, wonderful. But when you come together in public worship, 
It's confusing when you pray that way unless there's somebody there to interpret. Something we'll talk about, hold, hang on, next week. Because the point is that you're to build one another up in love. And if you are showing yourself to be spiritual by praying out in a tongue that nobody can understand, what benefit is that for the congregation? It's not building people up in love. It's, if anything, you're, you're, you're raising a barn. You're not building a church. It becomes something that is for you. It becomes something private. It becomes something that is a, is a wonderful thing for your intimate relationship with Jesus. But it is not. It is not for the edification of the entire church. So don't do it. Prophecy is better. But notice that Paul here is not putting tongues down. He's not saying, in the word picture I gave earlier, that, that barn raising is bad. No, he's just saying that church building is good. When you gather together, build one another up. In 1975, two years after the Presbyterian Church in America began, they did a study report, as Presbyterians are wont to do, on the works of the Holy Spirit. And guess what they did it on? The gifts of the Spirit. How are we to understand them? And in particular, the gift of tongues. And I just want to read to you the conclusion that they made about tongues. I think it's very helpful. There are three of them. Any view of the tongues as experienced in our time, which conceives of it an experience by which revelation, that is revelation beyond the bounds of God's word, is received from God that is contrary to the finalized character of revelation in scripture is to be rejected. Any view of tongues which sees the phenomenon, this phenomenon, as an essential sign as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens, of course, when we're converted. There's no two baptisms, there's one. That is contradictory uh, to scripture. Any practice of tongues, the tongues phenomenon, in any age which causes dissension and division within the body of Christ or diverts the church from its mission is contrary to the purpose of the spiritual gifts because they are intended to build one another up in love. Are you with me? All right. So what's the point? The point here is do not be distracted by the whole issue of tongues because that is not Paul's primary point in 1 Corinthians 14. But because he spends so much time on it and we need to therefore as we study scripture also think about what his argument is in using it. And his argument simply is if you have a gift that you pray to the Lord or you, you have a way of communing with God that is distracting to other people potentially in public worship, don't practice it in public worship. You'll sound like a foreigner to other people and it will be confusing and it will be divisive. Don't do it. Rather, he says, I would rather you prophesy. And what does that mean? He says, I would rather you speak in an intelligible way to make worship clear lest it be confusing to other people. And one of the ways we try to make worship here very clear is by reminding you again and again and again that the roots of your growth in Christianity are the same way that Jesus encourages us in his very first sermon. That is, the roots of your growth are twofold. They are repentance and faith. I've used the illustration of a bicycle before. There are two pedals on a bicycle. Repentance and faith. 
Repentance and faith. That is how you progress in the Christian life. It's the same way you came into the Christian life and it's the same way you progress in the Christian life. But the fruits of that root blossom into the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and using your gifts, they're beautiful, but they are never to be mistaken to be the root. And in Corinth, they were using these fruits, these gifts, to be the measuring stick by which you proved yourself to be spiritual. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Worship. Worship should be characterized by love and worship should on a practical level be intelligible. It should make sense. And so when we come to worship here at Trinity, why do we worship the way we do? Well, what would you do if Jesus who is here, were to walk into the room. He would call us to worship him. We would sing of his beauty. We would fall on our face before him in confession. He would lift us up. He would remind us of his holy word. He would command us. He would invite us to a meal. He would send us out. That is the order of worship in this church. A call to worship. We sing of his glory. He calls us to confession. We sing of his might and strength. We hear his word. We enjoy him at table. And he sends us out with his good word. And we want it to be clear. But not only clear, but secondly, we want it to edify. When Paul says, I want you to prophesy... He is saying that the one who prophesies, verse 3, speaks to the people for, what's the purpose of prophecy? For upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. To prophesy is not, to prophesy is, um, in the Old Testament, a prophet would prophesy truths about God to God's people. Sometimes they were foretelling what God had done. Sometimes they were foretelling what God would do. And in the New Testament, the work of prophecy and revealing his will for his people in an authoritative way ceased with the apostles. With the closing of the canon of scripture. So, what are we to do with the passages that tell us to, to prophesy, to encourage each other? Well, Paul says that the gift of prophecy is for the, what? It is for the comfort it is for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of God's people today. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, hey, I just want to encourage you that your Savior loves you so much and that he knows you're going through an incredibly difficult time and he is with you and he is near you. You have people who just come to you and just encourage you in a really personal way with the truth of God's word. That, in some ways, is, is like what the gift of prophecy is today. Some, I, some of you in this room have an incredible gift of prophecy where you can almost spontaneously in the moment encourage somebody with the truth of God's word in a very piercing way that strengthens, that encourages, or that comforts them. Have you ever had that experience yourself? Is it revelatory? No. The canon of scripture is closed. There is no 3rd Corinthians. There is no additional word from the Lord. And Paul says repeatedly that you should test the prophecies. In Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19, you should test the prophecies. You don't have to test the prophecies in the Old Testament. Nobody tested Isaiah's prophecy because it was 
in that time God's way of revealing truth about his word. But now we test the prophecies because they are encouraging words to strengthen, the verse says, to build you up and to console you with the promises of God. So we might say that the definition of, of prophecy would be this. Strengthening, encouraging, comforting God's people with spontaneous reminders or applications of Scripture. Make sense? And many of you have this gift. Like many of you, I don't know how you do it. But you'll encourage, you'll encourage me in ways that, um, you know, will just be, you know, it's not weird. You're not being like overly specific often. You're just, you know, you're just, you encourage me with helping me recognize blind spots in my life. Happens all the time in community group. You're not extending, you're not going beyond the bounds of, of revelation. No. But in this text, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that I want you to use your gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And he says, he explains it like this. Brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And then he uses illustrations from uh, music and from the military. Even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, if you were to grab a flute up here and you were to put your hands on all the stops and just blow, and you'd make this concophonous sound. You couldn't deter. It wouldn't be beautiful. It would just, it would, it would, it would, I don't know, it would be, uh, it wouldn't be clear. Or with a harp. If you didn't use the pedals and you just started plucking on the harp strings, it wouldn't make distinct notes. It's not for what it's used for. Or the bugle. It would give an indistinct sound. Who could get ready for battle? Reveille or, or taps or, or other ways they use the bugle in the military. Who would know what they meant? Is it time to get up or is it time to go to sleep? We wouldn't know. It would be confusing. And so Paul says, if with your tongue you utter speech that is intelligible, better is it to be prophetic and to encourage one another in the church with the application of Scripture so that they may be built up so don't lose Paul's main point. His main point here is to say that the use of your spiritual gifts and love is for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the point. And we can raise barns together. But better, he says, is it to build churches together. A barn becomes the possession of a single family. But a church becomes the possession of the entire community. It becomes the meeting house around which the entire community, in the illustration I used at the beginning, the Amish community, revolves and is encouraged and is uplifted. Some of you, um, some of you know what it's like to build other people up. You've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I read this week, you know, um, uh, Deshaun Watson in 2014, uh, I think, was, um, was, you know, one of the top prospects that came out of high school in football. And Deshaun Watson ended up going to a Clemson. He led them to a national championship. He was drafted into the first round of the NFL. He went on to become the quarterback with the highest career completion percentage of all time. He was a pro bowler earlier in his career. He's still playing. But what most people don't know is that Deshaun Watson grew up with a mom, Deanne, and three siblings in a very small apartment in Gainesville, Georgia. His mom worked very hard for the family. His dad was out of the picture. 
And meanwhile, there is a gentleman who played football a generation before Deshaun Watson named Warwick Dunn. Now in his late 40s, early 50s. He played for 12 years. And he also grew up in a very cramped apartment in Baton Rouge. And a couple of days after Warwick Dunn's 18th birthday, his mother, who was a police officer in Baton Rouge, was on a security job and she was tragically murdered. And Warwick always played football because he knew that one day, someday, he's going to buy his mama a house. <laughs> and tragically, she died and he never had the opportunity to buy her that house. And so when Warwick Dunn began to make money, and he realized that he could buy a house or two or three, he started a foundation to buy houses for mamas. And one of those houses that he bought was for a family called the Watson family in Gainesville, Georgia. And Warwick Dunn bought a house for this young family of a mama with four kids. And the 11-year-old in the family was this incredibly active, athletic little kid named Deshaun. And Warwick Dunn bought them a house. And Deshaun Watson grew up through high, junior high and high school in the house that Warwick Dunn bought for him. Because Warwick Dunn said, I'm going to build up the communities that I came from and I'm going to literally help provide houses for mamas because I couldn't provide my mama a house. And some of you in this church, brothers and sisters, you have gifts, O oh, Warwick Dunn's. And there are Deshaun's in this church that you are uniquely equipped to shepherd them with your gift of encouragement, of teaching, of serving, all kinds of ways. Are you doing it? The amazing privilege it is to be able to do that. And to apply this passage, I just wanted, I just wanted to encourage you, there's a whole bunch of them, I'm not going to share them all because I know what time it is, but I just want to share a couple of them. When, do you know that your presence at worship builds other people up? Just by being here. Some of us think, well, I don't need to go to worship. My schedule doesn't allow it. But don't you see how radically selfish that kind of response is? Worship is not for you. <laughs> Worship is for one another. And you will say, well, no one will ever know if I don't go to church. Well, I would say that is a bigger problem, isn't it? If no one ever knows if you go to worship. And most of the churches that we've been involved with in the past, and this one is not ex accepted. It is possible to go to church and slip out the back door and no one even knows you came. That is a travesty. Because the point of worship is to encourage the brothers and sisters by strengthening them, by encouraging them, and by uplifting them, by building them up and consoling them with the gifts that you have. Through prophecy, yes, but also through the other gifts that you have. Weekly gathered worship is the means by which we build one another up as we worship Jesus through faith and repentance together as we say and sing and respond to the truth of Scripture and the power of His presence by the Holy Spirit. Worship is not about you. And when you recognize that, you find a richness and a depth of public worship that becomes beautifully mysterious to you. The second way of application, I would say, is that discovering your gifts takes prayer and takes time. So be patient. But are you praying? Are you eagerly desiring the gifts? Lord, give me the gift. Show me my gifts. Help me to use my gifts. When you come to worship, 
how can you speak about or sing about or savior the beauty of Jesus in your fellowship with others? How can you uniquely encourage others? Who can you be praying about as you come to church? Are you just thinking about how you look? If you got the argument over with before you get your coffee? Or are you walking in the building and saying, oh, Lord, I pray, I, man, I pray that Andrew worships well today. Man, I pray that Rebecca is able to see the beauty of Jesus. Man, I pray, I pray that Jill is able to savor the depth of Jesus' love for her. Are you praying like that? You made vows to do that. Who do you see that needs strength or encouragement or building up? Do you leave here and do you judge the quality of the morning by how much you got out of it? Or by how much you enjoyed God's, God's presence and encouraged your brothers and sisters? Listen, I know half of you are already asleep and maybe that means we ought to develop better sleep patterns. <laughs> so we recognize that on Saturday night we should go to bed earlier. We should be rested for worship. Do we invest the energy it takes to worship well? Friends, there are some hard things to understand in Scripture. And 1 Corinthians 14, I will just be the first to admit, is one of those hard passages. It's hard. And people have been deeply, deeply split. But 90%, no matter if you're a, a cessationist or a continuationist, 90% of the commentators believe that there's, this is not all I think the ones who are right. This is not continuing revelation. This is not a matter of adding to Scripture. But even most charismatics believe that too. So be careful the way that you may have a different view of gifts and look down your nose at other people. That is not Paul's point. In fact, you are only illustrating his point if you do that. But love others. Be patient with them. Use your gifts to edify, to build up the body of Christ. Paul has, to, he has nothing but good things to say about us frolicking in our gifts. About building barns together. It's wonderful. When the Amish raise barns, it is a beautiful thing. Paul has nothing against our own private spirituality. In fact, he commends it. He says you should pray. You should develop your spiritual life. You should not shy away from the practice of tongues, he says to the Corinthians, but just don't use it to distract people in public worship. Deepen your prayer life. Yes! On the one hand, you are to pray and reflect and examine the desires of your heart, but on the other hand, you are not to be distracted by individual gifts because we all use our gifts in love to build up the church. What was it that Peter said? Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, so put away all malice, trinity, and all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up in your salvation. As you come to him, you are living stones, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, you are chosen and precious. And in a few months, we're going to watch stones be put on our church building. And you think about the way the Lord has put each of you in this room and others who aren't yet here, specifically in place to help build up this church. And we know that you are being built up. Why? Because it is our Savior Jesus who is the chief cornerstone, as Peter says. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone that is chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will never be put to shame, as Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 28. Jesus has given you the gifts of the Holy Spirit for you to use to encourage your brothers and sisters. And so let's do it. 
But let's have a service of gathered worship that is understandable and also mutually encourages and builds one another up. Amen? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and he invites you to find your rest in him as you begin to learn how to use your gifts in his love. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.